Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, July 13th, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. As usual, we have no shortage of things to talk about this week. We are going to give you the latest update on healthcare legislation in the Senate. Republicans are tweaking their bill today, but it doesn't look like they're addressing the concerns of several key moderates, at least according to what they're saying. So more on that in a bit. We'll also discuss the Trump administration's Election Integrity Commission, which has sparked fury from Democrats and even resistance from some Republican secretaries of state in recent weeks with its request for voter data in all 50 states. But we are going to start out today by talking about the story of the week, Donald Trump Jr.'s emails. It was revealed this week that the president's son exchanged emails and set up a meeting in 2016 in the hope of getting dirt on Hillary Clinton from people connected to the Russian government. So we're going to talk all about that and where the investigation currently stands into Russian activities during the 2016 election. A couple of things before we kick off. Remember, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com if you have any questions. And please subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. We want your feedback so we can keep improving the show and expanding the audience. And one more thing. The Nerdcast is hitting the road at the end of the month. If you live near the Pasadena, California area, mark your calendars. The Nerdcast is going to Politicon for a live show at the Pasadena Convention Center at 1 p.m. on Saturday, July 29th. We'll also post that episode in our normal podcast feed, so if you don't enjoy the privilege of living in the shadow of the Rose Bowl, or you just can't make it, you can still catch that episode. All right, let's jump in. We're going to start off with Russia today, and we have Darren Samuelson, Politico's senior White House reporter, in the studio to talk to us about the investigation. Hi, Darren. Hey, Scott. Thank you for being here. Happy to be here. And, of course, as usual, we also have senior politics editor Charlie Mintessian. Hey, Scott. Really excited to be here with Darren Samuels. (laughs) We can hear it in your voice. (laughs) And national political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hello. All right. Let's jump into our first data point. That is the number 16. And that is the number of emails in a chain between Donald Trump Jr. and a publicist named Rob Goldstone, who offered in June 2016 to connect the president's son with Russians offering anti-Hillary Clinton information as, quote, part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. So, Darren, you've been covering the progress of special counsel Robert Mueller and his team investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election. Where does this email fit into the probe? It obviously it blew up your your week and, and has, week. has kind of taken over everything. But where where does it fit into this the the broader picture of where the probe is right now? Well, it certainly was crazy and I think it justifiably was on the front page of newspapers and the attention of, of everybody who's watching this for a reason. I mean, this Wait, is, what happened, guys? Well, there was this email chain that came out a couple days ago. Well, somebody said something inappropriate? Um, I mean, it, you just read it. I, I think everyone should read it. And, you know, initially you couldn't believe that you were actually seeing Don Jr. say what he said there, uh, you know, loving that uh, the Russians are uh, offering up information. 
where does it fit? I mean, this in, this investigation is going to take a really long time. I think people need to kind of stop, take a breath, even on every single one of these, you know, mega explosions or mini explosions, whichever they may be, and let Mueller and Congress do the investigating that they're doing because we're not prosecuting. We're not the ones that are ultimately, you know, going to be deciding what charges are going to be brought. So, you know, you can look at this and you can try and decipher whether or not he violated any laws. Um, but really, that's a decision that the prosecutors are going to make. Well, what is the potential legal exposure? Uh, it seems like a lot of lawyers have been arguing with each other in the press about what exactly the legal exposure is. There's no statute against collusion. Yeah, collusion is is a term that we make up, kind of like smoking gun. Uh, <laughs> it's like sort of the way that you know law and order people who are trying to follow this stuff might uh, be able to pay attention and, and and look for the key moments. But yeah, uh, collusion is not in federal uh, criminal statute. Uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States is. Treason, as we heard from Senator Tim Kaine uh, this week, you know, is possible. Uh, federal campaign finance laws and, and particularly uh, working and soliciting uh, anything of value from a foreign national is a no-no. Uh, obviously, perjury, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, lying to investigators, misleading investigators. These are all things that I think as this case gets investigated and, and as this email will be introduced as evidence. No doubt Bob Mueller is looking at this email, this email. He might have already had the email for all we know. And it's very possible that he did because we are dealing with a Russian national who is engaging with an American. And that's the kind of thing that a FISA court, you know, would be giving a green light to let you have access to. So it's very likely that Mueller might have had this email, which might have also been part of the reason why, uh, you know, Don Jr. maybe decided to put it out there on Twitter for all the world to see. Um, but that piece of evidence will be introduced, and I'm sure uh, everyone who's on that email chain will be questioned about it. And if their stories do not line up, someone's not telling the truth. And that's where, again, you end up with all manner of, of charges potentially coming down the line. But I think, you know, again, hold your breath or take a breath, I should say. It's not going to be something that we're going to see an indictment or any kind of Bob Mueller press conference until maybe next year, though election, you know, politics come into play as well once we get into 2018. So definitely don't hold your breath. I think is the, <laughs> hold uh, your breath so that you're dead. By the time. <laughs> and then you don't have to, you don't yeah. have to read Put about yourself the story out anymore. of your misery before we see the end of this. Um, Charlie, what was your, as you were watching this happen, you and I on, on uh, Monday, I guess it was kind of like walked by each other in the newsroom, kind of just wide eyed at <laughs> what was going on, but just. Then you held each other for 10 <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I think like Darren, I think it justified the uh, sort of over the top coverage. It's it's a really big deal. It's especially a big deal because now we actually have the documents. Uh, we know that they also recognize that it's a big deal because they were playing games with the release of the emails. They released the emails to uh, to reduce the sting of the New York Times story. They tried to game the the Times and the reporting of it. But again, you know, just like Darren mentioned, it's really important for people to take a step back and understand that collusion itself isn't a specific federal crime. There is no specific legal meaning to it. And we really, you know, we really don't have that much to go on, even though we have the language from the email, because what's important in, in all of the kinds of possible charges that have been discussed here is what was said in the meeting. And we don't know what was said in that meeting. So there's a lot of potential 
illegal actions, but there is no smoking gun, even though it's often referred to as that. And I think that's all really important to uh, keep in mind here. I do think the most damaging aspect, though, ultimately is going to be just the meeting itself and the email and the language in the email uh, establishes motive and state of mind for whatever happens in the future. Also, I can't help but thinking about the Keystone Cops uh, aspect to this. Like Goldstone, the more I read about him, like it doesn't it doesn't give me confidence to know that they're cavorting with a character like him. I mean, read any of the coverage of, like, why is that guy even connected to people at the highest levels of our government? And the, and the email language is so ham-handed. Like, it makes me wonder about the naivete uh, of the folks who took that meeting uh, of Kushner and Manafort and Trump. I mean, let, let's just imagine the worst-case scenario. Um, and let's stipulate that they there was some wrongdoing or intent to do wrongdoing there. Wouldn't wouldn't it strike you as odd if the email language talked about you will be meeting with a Russian government attorney? You know, right there is the giveaway. Like when that goes down, I have to imagine that that meeting isn't quite so ham handed in the way it's set up. So I don't know. Either way, it's very unsettling. Think about this. I mean, think about the context and the timing. We're talking about June 2016. He's just won the nomination or he's on his way to the nomination. And the people around him haven't been in politics. I mean, they are. Well, Paul Manafort had been in politics. Paul Manafort has been in politics. So but he's not I, even. He hadn't read all the way down to the bottom of the email chain, according to the source close to Manafort. But this you is know, the, it occurred to me like, why was this guy drawing salary if he wasn't really running the campaign? So if he wasn't uh, nannying the children, uh, I'm not exactly sure what he was doing. I agree with Darren. I mean, there is certain truth to the idea that this was. Uh, an example of the kind of amateur hour junior varsity campaign that the Trump folks were running until near the end. I mean, people forget how seat of the pants that campaign was. And I could easily envision. Yeah, I don't know if people forget. Yeah, OK. <laughs> so but you can easily imagine a scenario in which Don Jr. is thinking to himself, yeah, this is like House of Cards. Somebody just emailed me in a secret meeting. I'm going to get this great oppo dump. Uh, and it's going to really be devastating the Clinton campaign and dad's going to love me for it. And, you know, you can always imagine that kind of scenario. And because the campaign operated that way for so for so much of the campaign of, of just winging it the whole time. Richard Burr, the head of the Senate, Senate Intelligence Committee, said yesterday, you know, look, this campaign couldn't even collude with the RNC. <laughs> so the idea that they were like colluding with the foreign government to throw a selection, um, they may have tried. And I think because we don't know what was said in the meeting, all we know is that there was what looks like a failed attempt to collude or an openness or a willingness to collude. But I actually think the most damaging part of this, well, it's twofold. One is the timing, because it does seem to me like we were getting to a point where um, this Russia stuff had dragged on for a long time. It really hadn't produced very much. And um, people were getting um, sort of ready to move on from it. And then this came. And I think it's um, it's totally reset the narrative. But the second part, which I think is the most damaging thing, is the news, which the New York Times reported, that the White House actually wrote Don Jr.'s initial statement about this, which um, violated every rule of crisis management in that – um, it was not forthcoming. It was dishonest. And so the information dribbled out about the meeting and suggests that the White House has not been transparent about any of this. They were helping Don Jr. cover this up. And, um, you know, it raises questions about whether we do know the extent of what happened um, with this now and whether there's 
um, more to come out about this. And we, sh- we should say there were three stages to this, right? It was it was uh, reported that there was a meeting, and then it was reported that there were emails setting up the meeting, and, and both of those reports were derided by the White House. And then the actual text of the email came out. <laughs> well, uh, no, and, and, you know, initially said, yes, we had the meeting, but it was about Russian adoption. And she talked about um, repealing the Magnitsky Act. And um, and then it came out that she had initially promised uh, to provide damaging information on Hillary Clinton. They said, oh, well, it, you know, it was never discussed or she never provided it. And then the emails came out. And so the, the fact that the White House provided that initial statement either suggests that Don Jr. was dishonest with the White House, that the White House wasn't in possession of these emails, but something went seriously awry here. It does raise questions to me about whether we know um, the full extent of what transpired here. Charlie? There's uh, some important context here that we haven't discussed, and uh, at least political context. And I don't know if, if you guys read that story yesterday um, about the how the GOP base is, is reacting to this vote. So we decide uh, to uh, launch a couple of uh, our reporters uh, on a round of phone calls across the country uh, to local Republican Party officials because we wanted to understand uh, exactly how the GOP base was responding to this. What did they think? Because it's it's uh, very material because ultimately if Republicans don't abandon Donald Trump, uh, he's still viable and Republicans in Congress are still going to fight and defend him uh, to the end. So uh, in calling around uh, Gabe DiBenedetti and, and Jake LaHutt, talked to more than two dozen uh, local county chairmen uh, in some of the most competitive places in the country, places where we'll have the most competitive house races in 2018. And they and their reporting to me was amazing. Uh, they said almost universally, all of the local officials said it was a nothing burger. They weren't following it. Uh, it was no big deal. And ultimately, the only fault they found was in the media. All of these folks, and they say these officials feel this way, but they also characterized Republican activists that they deal with on a daily basis as feeling this way, that not only is it a nothing burger, the only collusion going on is between Democrats and the media. And, you know, I, I sort of expected a little of that. But when I saw their raw reporting and talked to them about what they were hearing from these local officials, I thought it was pretty stunning that this is not getting any traction at all because these folks say not only are people not paying attention, they think that it's the Democrats who are over-pursuing and the media that are facilitating this. And that is, uh, I think, pretty amazing. It's interesting that that benefit of the doubt it continues to, especially as we saw over the past week, the the what Eliana alluded to before about how it seemed like Russia was starting to move to the back burner a little bit, how the benefit of the doubt that had been building among Republican senators in particular seems to have uh, evaporated in a lot of cases. And I saw, you know, Trey Gowdy gave, uh, not a senator, a member of Congress, gave a very tough interview to CBS Evening News uh, last night, kind of talking through the legal ramifications here as a former prosecutor. From the moment you had a shot of liquor with a guy in a furry hat, you need to disclose every contact you have ever had with Russia. We got to be the ones disclosing this. We can't have it uncovered by, by an investigative reporter. Congressman Gowdy, I would say, though, I mean, as it drifts to the back, maybe for a lot of people, you know, this investigation continues. And so, you know, it might not be on the front burner in the minds as people are thinking about health care or thinking about tax reform or whatever. But I mean, remember, it was like four days ago that or five days ago that 
Trump and Putin were meeting for the first time face to face. And this was very much a part of that discussion as, as they came out of that meeting talking about uh, working together on cyber for uh, future elections, which just kind of everyone just smacked their head and said, what? How on earth does uh, the United States and Russia start partnering together with the 2018 campaign You know, already active and, and James Clapper and others warning that you know the Russians are already up to monkey business again You know, with this next round of elections? So this is not going away. The politics aside, like Bob Mueller is going to bring charges even if people in Iowa don't think that this is a big deal. I mean basically the question is going to go down to – you know, juries and judges in Washington, D.C. that are going to be the ones, you know, deciding guilt or innocence and, and Bob Mueller and deciding whether or not he's got a strong enough case to bring, you know, case, uh, charges against people. So I'm sure that Mueller, you know, has a little bit of a political bone in his body, but I don't know that politics is really what's driving him to decide whether someone should be, uh, you know, indicted or not. And so that's sort of uh, the politics is obviously very important. And obviously he have, he'll have a big Comey-like decision to make next year, whether or not to announce charges in the midst of a campaign or hold back on charges if he's not ready to do anything. And, you know, will he do a press conference if he's, you know, got uh, information but doesn't feel like he's going to indict? And, and, you know, everyone will obviously be wondering what he has to say. He's been doing a very good job of keeping quiet and really letting the New York Times and the Washington Post and the politicos of the world, you know, fill the fill the information vacuum and, and Congress as well uh, with the hearings that they're doing. I mean, we're going to have Roger Stone and Jared Kushner and all these people coming up to testify in the next many weeks, some of it in public, a lot of it not in public. And so this case and the story is going to continue all through the summer, into the fall, into next year. And yeah, I well, guess you should. Uh, since you brought it up, can I ask a question of all of you? I'm really curious about this. I'm serious. I know it's not going to sound like a joke, but the, the idea that you brought up that Trump promised some sort of cybersecurity initi- uh, initiative with Russia, like there's not anyone in the world that believes this is real, right? I mean, and no. what I'm asking you guys is, could it even be real? No. Like, would anyone in the government ever even participate? Even if the, I mean, is there any prospect that this could ever happen? Will there even be a meeting, a document issued? It, no, I mean, G20s right? typically produce a lot of that kind of thing, you know, uh, bilateral agreements that, you know, we forget about within six hours. This one was weird in that it was <laughs> in talking about a mutual agreement on something with an enemy that that, you know, I mean, the, all the metaphors that came out of, you know, do you, do you have a burglar come and, and, and then, you know, inspect your home for uh, <laughs> for uh, for future crimes. So. Yeah. Is it real? I don't know. But I mean, we also have, as you guys are going to talk about, you know, soon enough, this this voting commission that they're dealing with as well. Like there's all these things that are sort of happening. I mean, this is kind of maybe part of the Trump defense, too, is you throw a lot of sand out there. You you, you create chaos. You try and distract from what the underlying issue is. And so now we're just starting to get Trump's interpretations in these interviews that he's been giving in recent days uh, and you know, how he regrets not asking Putin, uh, were you really trying to help me? <laughs> Um, God, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that uh, at that meeting, and also spoken Russian. To, when uh, when Trump broke out his fluent Russian, <laughs> totally right. All right, well, uh, buckle in, everyone. Like uh, like Darren said, the story is going to take a long time to unfold, and we are definitely going to have you back to talk about it I'll more. Be here Thank you for being here. Twenty seven or so. Probably. <laughs> He's under contract. <laughs> Let's take a quick break to hear about one of Politico's other podcasts. Hi, I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm here to tell you a little bit about my new podcast, The Global Politico. Like you, I'm trying to make sense of this disrupted world we're all living in. Each week, we'll bring you candid conversations with key players 
guests like Jim Baker and Madeleine Albright, Condi Rice, and Bob Corker. If she had become president, the world would still be this complicated. This will probably get me in a lot of trouble, but I do think there is a degree of admiration for a strong man. I'm sorry. Look for new episodes of The Global Politico every Monday morning on Apple Podcasts or whatever is your preferred podcast platform. Okay, let's jump from there into our second data point. That's the number eight. There are two groups of four Republican senators who are uh, developing into the most important players in the Senate health care debate. On the conservative side, we've got Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, and Ron Johnson. And then on the moderate side, we've got Dean Heller, Rob Portman, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. They are becoming especially important this week as Republicans tweak their uh, health care proposal as they look for something that can pass uh, in their in their efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare. So let's welcome in senior reporter Nancy Cook. Nancy, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Nancy, what are the latest developments on health care and how Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is trying to appeal to the senators in these two groups? We should say later today they're actually unveiling some uh, new draft language, but we have an idea of what's going into that already. Right. So healthcare is just changing, you know, on a day by day thing. But as you said, Scott, um, they're meeting actually right now, uh, the Senate Republicans, to unveil this new bill with the hope that potentially um, Senator Mitch McConnell can get the Republican conference to vote on it next week or in the coming weeks. And they're also having the Congressional Budget Office score it. So what's new about this bill is basically to appease the conservative wing of the party. They've added, and we don't no, the full text of the bill, we haven't seen it, but from the draft uh, outline that has circulated, it seems like they have allowed um, Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Lee to insert this amendment that would let them pare back um, some insurance requirements and offer sort of two types of insurance. And that's sort of a nod to try to get conservatives on board. Of course, in giving that nod to conservatives, there's also been moderates like Susan Collins, for instance, who are still really angry about the state of the bill, still angry about some of the Medicaid cuts. And it just shows you how tricky this is for Majority Leader McConnell because he has to walk this line of trying to appeal to these really disparate groups in his caucus, which want totally different things on policy. Um, you know, you have Rand Paul on one side who's mad that the the bill as is doesn't sort of get rid of the whole structure of Obamacare. And then you have more moderates on the other side, like Murkowski and Collins, who feel like you need to keep some of the Obamacare, like the Medicaid expansion in place, because otherwise it's going to hurt constituents. When we talk about Paul and his complaint from the conservative side about not doing more to uproot Obamacare. What what specifically does that mean? Does he want the the insurance marketplace gone? Is it the the essential health benefits stuff? Is it the Medicaid expansion? What is it that that qualifies as this to him? Because that that seems like an important point. If his objection to this is so fundamental, there's only a two-vote margin of error here, and there are more than two moderates. I mean, I personally think that that Paul for instance is ungettable on this because he objects basically to you know this the government getting involved in healthcare and doesn't want any of those structures of Obamacare there. And the Senate bill does leave some of that in place. Like for instance, his latest draft would keep uh, get rid of some of the taxes that help fund Obamacare, but not all of them. Um, you know, it would keep some of the uh, insurance marketplace in place, but it wouldn't necessarily force people to buy it. The individual mandate would go away. Um, it would give states waivers to get out of some of the. Pre- 
pre-existing conditions or, or not the pre-existing conditions, but the essential health benefits that they have to recover. And so this is just like a lot of the architecture will be there still. And that is a huge sticking point for Paul, but also for conservative groups like Heritage um, and a bunch of other folks. This sounds like an impossible problem to well, solve at, the, at that point. I would add, I, I think the fundamental issue with when Republicans say this doesn't repeal Obamacare, what they're really talking about is the community rating system. And the community rating system essentially prevents insurers from risk rating those who buy insurance and saying, if you're old, you have a higher risk of getting sick than if you're young. If you have a pre-existing condition, you're, um, we're going to charge you more for insurance than if you don't. Um, it basically forces insurers to treat everybody the same way in order to incentivize everybody to buy insurance and this is what people tout as a cost stabilizing measure. The healthcare, you know, policy experts I've talked to say if you leave the community rating system in place, you're essentially leaving the structure of Obamacare in place. The result of the community rating system is that younger and healthier people pay far more than they would normally pay w- without Obamacare because they're they're far cheaper to insure and uh, older, sicker people and so on, they're getting a better deal. And interestingly, you know, the Ted Cruz and Mike Lee Amendment, um, it basically would divide the marketplace um, in two and it would create one uh, high risk marketplace and a low risk marketplace. And a lot of people are saying this isn't going to fix the problem. It's going to have an Obamacare marketplace and a non-Obamacare marketplace. And, you know, it creates new problems of its own, I think. And politically, it's so tricky, too, because – you know, if you start charging people, I mean, regardless of what you think about ideologically, but if you start charging sort of older and sicker people more money for insurance, you know, then you hit like the senior citizen votes, you get AARP involved. I mean, AARP is already involved. But like, these are people with money and time who traditionally have voted. And there's real political dimension to walking into that as well. Yeah, Charlie, from the political angle, that was one of the the big forces that drove Republican opposition to Obamacare in in 2009 and 2010 into that the wave election that year, right? It was this kind of wave of anger, particularly among older Americans. Every time you have comprehensive uh, health care reform at issue, whether you're talking about 1994 or 2010, uh, you're dealing with the most volatile and combustible political elements, and it uh, ultimately ends up poorly for one of the parties involved. Here, it's hard for me to make sense of it. It's hard for me to even see the path forward because of, of number one, I try and pay close attention to the language that uh, members are using. And when you hear the senators talk, there's not a lot of confidence in you know, like John Cornyn saying, we don't have the numbers right now, but we don't need them right now. And and that's true. He doesn't need them at that moment. But when you when you go through the body of what all the members are saying, you know, it sh- it gives you a real sense of how dicey it is. And they're not getting much leadership from the top. Clearly, Trump is unfamiliar with the details of this bill. And the bigger problem is he's sending mixed messages about how much he cares. You know, he tells CBN uh, he will be very angry if it doesn't pass. Then in another interview, uh, he will say, oh, it's OK if it doesn't pass. So uh, it is. Uh, and he's meeting with uh, Zeke Emanuel at the right. same time as he's saying he wants Obamacare repealed. You know, I actually think that, that one of the biggest problems with this bill is a PR problem. Mitch McConnell, by crafting it behind closed doors, it, it essentially meant that the bill has no owner, no public sponsor or champion. And so while Chuck Schumer and the Democrats have a united front against it, it's getting shot down and attacked publicly every single day now for the past two or three weeks. Um, not a single Republican senator, though the majority of them support this bill, has been out front on the cable news shows, on talk radio or anywhere um, defending the contents of this bill. It certainly hasn't been 
Mitch McConnell. And of course, that's not the role he usually plays. But this isn't the Toomey Johnson bill or, you know, the McConnell, you know, Ryan bill. It's nobody's bill. Um, and it, and so it's being pilloried for its flaws. And nowhere is anybody um, touting its positive attributes. Well, And also just to that point, I mean, the White House isn't helping at all either. I mean, you know, President Trump is in France right now. Uh, You know, a bunch of White House officials that I talk to are just laying it at the feet. Not that he's the guy you'd look to uh, to to defend the substance of legislation, (laughs) you know. That's true. But, you know, he's also just totally taking a hands off approach except for threatening them occasionally and saying, like, don't pass a mean bill or you better not go home for recess without passing something. But he's not championing anything. And people in the White House, you know, are very quick to say that if this doesn't go through, they're just going to lay it at the feet of Congress and Speaker Ryan. This is a McConnell thing, though. I mean, Mitch McConnell would determine, you know, whether there is a public champion of this bill and and um, and if so, who who the champion should be or whether a bunch of Republican senators should be out front defending this bill, which leads me to believe that um, not that he's against the bill's passage, but that he's indifferent to it. And I think it also uh, speaks to the the lack of political gravity in this situation. I think in a lot of ways, members aren't sure what to make of it because all of the touchstones that they usually look to are missing. Like the point number one that uh, Eliana's making, there is nobody, not a single person in that party who is leading the charge, who's on the on the talk shows, advocating this, touting this, proudly carrying this around. So you've got that. You've got these town halls where Republicans largely believe these are artificial turf Uh, town halls where all the turnout is generated by Democratic groups. So they're not sure how much to believe their constituents and and how much to believe the the outpouring of anger over this. And the polling itself is also confusing for them and hard to read because on the one hand, they know that for the past seven years, they've been promising to repeal Obamacare. It's worked well for them at the polls. Uh, They know that Republican base hates Obamacare. But on the other hand, if you take a look at the recent polling, uh, Republican base also does not like this measure at all. And the numbers are just getting worse. So I think there's just a lack of data points for them from the political side. Yeah. And I mean, people don't like change and disruption in their health care. So I think health care is a politically fraught thing for Republicans when they're leading the charge, changing it. It's politically fraught for Democrats when they were doing it in 2010. There's no Obamacare repeal bill that wouldn't be politically fraught for Republicans because it means disrupting um, people's health care. But what I do think is that um, Democrats were willing to pay the political cost for it because they really believed in it. I don't think healthcare is something Republicans really care all that much about or that they're very comfortable talking about. And so as a result, I don't think it's something that they're um, – that they seem willing to pay the political cost for. Well, and just to that point, you know, Republicans haven't traditionally – like led with health care. I mean, with the exception of, you know, George W. Bush's Medicare prescription Part B, ben- Part D benefit, excuse me, which actually in hindsight like worked out fine and the cost estimates were much lower than people had thought and it faced some political opposition at the time. You know, other than that, there hasn't been like a ton of Republican-led forward-thinking health care proposals. Um, it's been much more like opposing the Democrats' passion for the subject. Well, we'll see. Like we said, the uh, new language is coming out uh, later today on Thursday. We'll see if any of this changes in the next week, if the changes that are made allow Republicans to rally around something in a way that they are uh, more comfortable defending in public, uh, campaigning for in public, all that stuff. Like we've said, every other time we've discussed this will be a continuing subject of discussion over future podcasts. And now a quick message from a Nerdcast sponsor. 
at this moment, let's move to segment three. And our final data point of this episode is the number 14. And that is the number of states that have outright declined Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach's voluminous request for voter data as part of his role on Trump's Election Integrity Commission, otherwise known as the Voter Fraud Commission, uh, that Trump said he would order after he was elected. Yet more states are refusing to hand over certain pieces of sensitive data that uh, were requested, and Democrats are on fire about this. Some Republicans are, too. So, Charlie, what's the commotion here? Suddenly everyone has a big opinion about voter data, which even some election nerds don't typically like delving into too deeply. So uh, can you give us a little bit of the background here? Well, the commotion here is because the the very request of voter data is uh, highly sensitive. And uh, it also has significant legal and political implications to it. Even in a non-politicized context, this would be a really touchy issue uh, because it essentially comes at the request of a uh, deeply polarizing president whose sole interest is invalidating some fairly remarkable and largely unproven claims about the nature of his victory. So Trump doesn't really care that much about the issue except to advance his own interests and uh, his own vanity about the idea that his feelings are hurt because Democrats question uh, his victory. There's very little evidence about this. Uh, I mean, it, it is largely a, an issue that circulates on the right. And even on the right, there's not a tremendous appetite for this. Uh, so all of those political factors, I think, obviously have poisoned the waters. But so has the person that is in charge of the commission. Uh, Chris Kobach, the, the Kansas Secretary of State, is a very smart public official. I mean, no one's ever questioned uh, his intellectual credentials. He's a very bright guy, but he's also a highly uh, divisive character. And he's one who's well known to uh, election officials and in the election law community and uh, to voter registration advocates around the nation. But the real problem here is that to Democrats, he's the face of voter suppression efforts. And so ultimately, that explains why if you were to look at, say, a map of uh, how the states have responded so far to these requests, what you'd see is that the blue states have essentially told uh, the commission, hell no, we're not giving it to you, and they're not going to comply. But because releasing this kind of personal data, uh, voting data, is a sensitive matter, red states aren't exactly embracing it uh, either. Many have said no or they're dragging their feet in, in various ways because they understand that there are privacy uh, considerations here. And the idea of releasing this kind of data is worrisome to many on the right. What you've seen is many states try to just sort of sidestep the whole controversy uh, and and sort of split the baby or at least just come up with a, a very straightforward and honest approach, uh, I'd say, which is that we will provide whatever data is publicly available anyway, because a lot of this data, people don't understand, a lot of it's available. You can buy it or it's easily accessible or you can download it from the site. And so they say, whatever's publicly available, we're happy to give it to you. And many states have done that. Uh, Washington state is basically uh, is saying to them, you can download it. Uh, if you want, we're not going to help you, but you can download it. I think it's interesting. Like it, what you just said is playing a big role in this. I think a lot of people don't understand how much voter data is public, whether or not you're registered, what elections you're voting in, sometimes in some states, what what party primaries you voted in. This is where political consultants get the information that they use to send those mailers in the past that say they're going to compare how you voted and your neighbors voted and they're going to tell everyone. And it's you know, these social pressure mailings to try and get people to turn out that invariably cause a lot of complaints uh, to, to local media when they happen. But the reason why the parties do them is they work. The difference is that now it's Trump publicly asking for it and and also the federal government asking for it also is is kind of alarming some people. In DC, I think district court last Friday at 4, there was a hearing about 
sort of the legality of this request from the administration. And there was no decision that was, you know, the judge didn't come to any decision, but the judge sort of asked the, um, you know, lawyers who are representing the administration from the Department of Justice to sort of outline, you know, a number of questions that she had had about what it looked like. And, you know, it's interesting because just from a broader perspective is that, you know, the courts are interested in this voter stuff. They're interested in, you know, the courts have stopped the sanctuary city stuff. There's been some problems with the travel ban, which we all know. And so I think it just shows um, in this instance, you know, a case in which uh, the Trump administration could yet again potentially come up against the legal system. And there's also one additional political layer that we haven't even talked about here, which is the political ambition of the secretaries of state yes. themselves. And these folks, not every secretary of state position in the states is elected, but many of them are. And it is a well-known springboard to higher office and ambitious. And oftentimes it is ambitious people, not election nerds, that hold those posts. You know, if you take a look at, you know, uh, some of the most prominent public officials in, in American politics today, they started out as the secretary of state. Uh, of their states. And it's not because they aspired from their youth to become uh, custodians of the public record. You know, they understood that that's how you start out your career. And, uh, you know, who started as a secretary of state? Uh, California Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, A couple people in the Senate have as well. I mean, at least two that I know of. I'm not sure of how many in total, but Sherrod Brown, the Democratic senator from uh, Ohio, spent about eight years as the the secretary of state in Ohio. Roy Blunt. Yeah, yeah, eight years. Wow. Uh, and uh, Roy Blunt spent about 10 years as Missouri's Secretary of State. Imagine that. Many of these folks that hold these positions uh, are highly political themselves, and so that is going into the calculus. And especially on the Republican side, you've got – there are several Republican Secretaries of State. We've got one in Georgia, Brian Kemp, one in Ohio, John Husted, who are running for governor uh, next year uh, for open seats. And Donald Trump is basically coming out and saying, like, they're doing – badly at their jobs. They're not doing a good job protecting the voter rolls from people registering and voting who shouldn't be. And this is their public record that they have to run on. And the the leader of their party is accusing them of dereliction of duty, right, as they're trying to, to springboard into which I think, like you said, it's there are a lot of Democrats making hay out of this because this is a, a subject of the resistance now. But on the Republican side, too, it, this is a direct threat to some political ambitions of uh, members of the president's party. Right. And you're not going to want to go. You're not going to want to go through a Republican primary on the bad side of, of the president. If you're a secretary of state, you have to think about that, too. If you don't comply, there is the prospect that folks will look at you as sort of less than loyal to Donald Trump. And in many states, uh, Donald Trump is still very popular. I mean, we're all, I think we're often uh, under the impression that he's wildly unpopular everywhere. That's not true. Uh, you know, his national ratings, he's underwater. But there are lots of places where he is, lots of Republican states, where, you know, he's doing just fine. And the Republican base, uh, you know, 80 percent of the Republican base in general is on board with him. And in some states, it's even higher. One, one other thing I want to touch on uh, before we finish up the segment. Like I said at the top, People don't typically get very excited or worked up about voter data, but the extent to which this has really sunk in, especially among the Democratic base, we've seen stories out of, in particular, Colorado, where I think it's particularly easy to make changes to things regarding voter registration because of some laws that were passed there over the past few years. But we've seen hundreds, reports of hundreds of voters unregistering to vote in in the wake of the Secretary of State there saying that he would send some data um, to this commission, which that is remarkable to me. Some of them will perhaps re-register. But the fact that people are erasing their, their 
ability to vote for the time being in order to avoid getting getting swept up in this is incredible to me. I kind of love it. as uh, I, I love the level of activism. I know there's some obviously very troubling implications to the idea that people feel they need to unregister to vote because they uh, feel their, their privacy rights are in danger of being violated. But on the other hand, you know, maybe this will sound Pollyannish and feel free to throw that water bottle at me. But I mean, I think it's great to see... A, people paying such close attention because of all the ways in which the government and the political process's tentacles affect our lives. And for many people to be paying such close attention that they would be doing that, because presumably if you're paying close enough attention that you're unregistering, you're paying close enough attention that you're going to re-register well, backward times but to But that's the key thing. Like, do those people re-engage and re-register? I, I like to think that they would if they're paying close enough attention to be familiar with this controversy yeah, that they would. But, you That's know, again, I, I might be naive. Um, there is, of course, that danger. But I, sh I just These love the These are the, the marchers who are, they're yeah. marchers. So I, so I think it's great. I mean, I think anything that gets people on either side, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, anything that gets you to engage more than to just, you know, pull the lever every two years is, is ultimately a good thing for us. I don't know. I'm not a marcher. <laughs> I said if the march was for like, you know, Prada, I still wouldn't be marching. It was what, pro What would you march the for? The march for like a pair you're of a journalist. free, free Prada shoes. I, I, I know. If the march was for like a pair of free Prada shoes, I wouldn't march. <laughs> She's really drawing the line on this podcast. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll have to come back and explore this a little more on a later episode. I want to want to see where this goes. Uh, all right. That does it for us. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Eliana. Thanks. And thank you, Nancy. Oh, thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, please email us with any questions you have at nerdcast at politico.com. Please also subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts, or if you have another favorite podcast app, that one too. Once again, thank you to our listeners, and a big thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, producer Rachel Cusick, illustrator Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher and Politico producer, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week. <laughs>